Welcome to Living Word Church. Let's hear from Pastor Ben as he teaches from the Gospel of John in our Eternal Word series. I've titled the message this morning, Which King Will You Serve? Which King Will You Serve? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather around your word. Lord, you have spoken to us most clearly through your word, and it is your word that is the foundation of our life. And so, Lord, when we open your word, we open the Bible, Lord, we know you're going to speak to us. Lord, we're not interested in what man has to say or man's opinions. Lord, we want to hear from you today. And so, I ask that you would speak to every single heart through the power of your word. And God, I ask you to help me to open my mouth to preach your word and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 1 and 2, you have letters, seven letters to seven churches. And in those letters to these seven churches, you have different forms of rebuke that the Lord gives to different churches about the way in which they are leading their church, the way in which the people are uh, uh, following the truth. And, 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 and some of the churches uh, some of the churches were embracing false doctrine and error. And in, in one church in particular, the church at Thyatira, listen to the words of the Lord of the church to the church at Thyatira. Revelation 2, starting in verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance that, you, that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So within the church, there's a, a Thyatira, there's a, there's a tolerance for the false teaching and ideas from Jezebel. This false teaching concerning food sacrificed to idols and the church is compromising as concerning false teaching and idolatry. And they're being rebuked and they're being given a chance to repent, to repent, to return to what is true, to what is good, to what is righteous. And the same is true for every church, whether it's our church or any church that is present in our world today. We have a a responsibility to, to have an allegiance to God, to have an allegiance to him as king, to have an allegiance to his word and to stand on the truth of scripture. It's our responsibility to do that as individual members, but as leaders of his church. And there's a church in, in history, there's a church by the name of Broadway Presbyterian Church. Broadway Presbyterian Church was a, a shining light for the gospel of Jesus Christ in New York City. From the, early, from the late 1800s to the mid-1960s, uh, towards the late 1960s, they really were a shining light. A large church had grown to be really large, over a thousand members regularly attending at Broadway Presbyterian Church. And then there was a change in focus. There was a change in the things that they approached. There was a shift away from the foundation of God's Word. And there was a shift towards mainly focusing on humanitarian needs and social issues versus a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just want to say a side note, it's not either or of those. It's both and. That we preach the Word of God primarily. And as a result of that, we, we do care about the, the issues of our society. But this church had had flipped that priority and had other liberal leaders that had come in into the congregation 
And what happened was this once thriving church became unfaithful. And, and they went to flying the banner or the flag of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To now, today, they are flying the rainbow flag of inclusion. So what, what happened to Broadway Presbyterian Church? This is what happened. The authority of the Word of God and the authority of Christ as King had been exchanged for the spirit of the age. The spirit of compromise. The spirit of the age. And the spirit of compromise. And in our text today, in John 19, we see God's people. We will see God's people. And specifically, the leader of God's people who adopt the spirit of the age and in turn, finally reject Christ as King. This is our text, John 19. This is what we will see. Let's look at our text, John 19, starting in verse 11. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you, Jesus says, has the greater sin. Jesus said this to Pilate. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation at the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Wow, we have no king but Caesar. Which king will you serve? The people of God will either worship Christ as king or they will worship Caesar. The people of God will either worship Christ as king or they will worship the spirit of the age. You can't do both. And that's what we will see in our text today. So notice first from the text, God's people reject their king. God's people reject. Reject their king. We just read it. Look at, back at the text. Verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. Here's your king. And they cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. You know, Pilate is seeking again all the more to release Jesus. He's trying his best to do the most politically expedient thing. I'm not letting Pilate off the hook. I'm not letting Pilate off the hook here. He's still accountable and culpable for his rejection of Christ as well. But he's trying. He had punished him. As we saw last week, we talked about the scourging of Christ last week. He was trying to punish him and then release him. And, and he's, he's, bringing them, he's bringing him out again before the chief priests and the crowd of Jews that had gathered. He's saying, behold, your king. And he's trying, but he's also hedging his bets. And the Jewish authorities, though, would have none of it. They'd have none of it. Look at what they say. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So what do you, what do you think the religious leaders of the Jews are, are communicating? What are the Jews communicating to Pilate here? They're saying, hey, Pilate, listen, buddy, Caesar won't be happy if you release a man who claimed to be a king. Caesar won't be happy if you, don't re if, you, if you release someone who's a threat to his throne. You see the manipulation of the Jews as they're trying to corner Pilate here? He's saying, he's saying, look, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who claims to be a king is not Caesar's friend. If you're going to do what's right, you're going to be on Caesar's side, and you're going to 
condemn this man. You're going to do what we want you to do. So what does Pilate do? Well, he gives in. We, we, we just read it. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought out Jesus. He sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement, and he made his judgment. What, what was this judgment seat? Well, I think it was a seat that would represent the authority of Rome, the authority of Caesar. He sat down in this seat that was recognized as, the, as his authority from Rome, and he made a judgment on Christ. Pilate made his ruling, and he says, okay, I've made my ruling. Now behold your king. It was like one last shot at the Jews. We're going to see one more thing that he does next week in the text. But he says, here's your king. And we just read, what did they say? No, away with him. They cried out, away with him, away with him. The people of God cry out, away with him, death to him. And what do we have here? We have God in the flesh, rejected by the ones he created. Israel had rejected their king, Christ was their king. They did not own Jesus as their king, but he was their king. He was. You know what's true about God and his relationship to his people is that God has always wanted to worship his people, to worship him as the king of their life, to be first place, to have no other competition. But, but we see even here, we see here that God's people are rejecting their king. They don't recognize Christ as king. They're rejecting him. But we see throughout the whole Old Testament that Israel consistently resisted the authority of God. Do you remember? This is God's people in the middle of, of, of exile in Babylon. The prophet Jeremiah was given to the nation of Israel from God as a messenger to call them back, to call them back. And look at Jeremiah 32. This is God speaking to his people. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I have drove them in my anger and my wrath and in my great indignation. I will bring them back to this place. I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. This is what God desires of his people, that they would be his people and that he would be our God. This is his heart. The heart of God has always been for his people to submit to his authority to experience the blessings that come from that submission. You know, the, the way in which God designs us to function is under a theocracy. That God would be the king, and that those who are called to be his servants would, would deliver his word to his people. And this is what God had established for the nation of Israel. But do you remember? They didn't want that. Do you remember when it shifted? Who was the prophet when, when their desire shifted? The prophet Samuel. Do you remember Samuel? Uh, the, 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 the nation of Israel comes to Samuel and they say, we want a king. Look at 1 Samuel 8. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And eventually, God gives them Saul. Behold your king, Israel. Here's Saul. You know the tragic story of Saul, don't you? Ends up going completely mad. He, he ends up losing his kingdom because he goes and he, he follows divination and he wants to talk to dead people to get wisdom. 
God removes the kingdom from Saul and raises up David, but the history of the nation of Israel is a good king and a bad king, a good king and an evil king, and the history of the nation of Israel is being oppressed by evil kings and being led into idolatry by evil kings and being judged and rebuked by God and, and then God being merciful and restoring, and you have this history of rebellion and idolatry because the people wanted to be like other nations around them, to have what they have, to do what they do. But God has always desired that his people would give first allegiance to him as king. That we would not desire to be like the nations around us. And he didn't want Israel to desire to be like the nations around him. If you're reading in Leviticus, in your Bible reading plan, and you get confused about everything going on in there. The reason that all of those dietary laws and cleanliness laws are there, it's because of a commitment from the Lord, a desire of the Lord for the nation of Israel, his people to be separate from other nations so they would not pollute themselves in idolatry and in paganism. But the nation wanted to be like, Israel wanted to be like the other nations to do what they do, to do what they do. The story goes, when President Calvin Coolidge was in office, he had some guests from his hometown that were showing up to visit him. And they were really excited. These were like, he was their hometown hero. They were from the hometown of President Coolidge. And and so they got together and they had a plan. They said, look, we don't know how to act at a state dinner. We don't know how to act in front of a president in the White House. So we're a little nervous. So how about when we're all there at the dinner table, we will all do everything that the president does. Whatever he does at the dinner table, we are going to do. And so it worked out good. President when he would pick up his glass, they would all pick up their glass. And he would move his knife, put his napkin on his lap or whatever. They would follow instructions. It, it, it worked until it didn't. They decided to do everything he did. So following the president's pattern worked well until coffee was served. President Coolidge poured his coffee on a saucer. So they all poured their coffee on a saucer. And then the president took some some sugar and put some sugar in it. And so they all put the sugar in the saucer with the coffee. And then he got some cream and put the cream in the, in the coffee and sugar and mixed it together. And so they all did the same thing. And then the president bent over and put the saucer on the ground for his cat. <laughs> Romans 12 tells God's people, do not copy the behaviors and customs of the world. Why? God says, you belong to me and you are my people. I am your God. I am your God. Don't copy the ways of the world. Don't, don't, we don't have to be like the world and do the things that the world does. And this is the, the desire of God for his people Israel, but because of a desire to go after the world and be like the world, they reject God as their king, just as the Jews are rejecting Christ as their king right in front of them. So here's my question, how often do we look at the world around us and our hearts subtly begin to believe that they have it better? We can all get there, right? Thoughts creep in. Is it worth it to serve Christ? The world is having the fun, enjoying the pleasures of this life. Is it worth it to serve Christ? Pilate makes his judgment, presents Jesus to Israel, and Israel says, away with him away with them. We choose Caesar. We choose to reject Christ, crucify him. And Pilate was right. 
When he said, behold your king, Jesus was their king. He was the king of the Jews. But God's people rejected their king. He reject, they rejected him. And notice what happens next. What happens next is the obvious implication of a rejection of Christ as king. Obvious implication is this. Notice again from the text, God's people pledge allegiance to idols. You reject God as your king, Christ as your king, you will be adopting idolatry. Look back to the text, John 19. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Pilate hears the cries of the people to crucify Jesus. He's not our king, away with him. And Pilate responds one more time, like one more effort. Shall I crucify your king? This time, the people say, okay, we're going to make it clear. The chief priests, the spiritual leaders of Israel, we're going to make it clear where, where we stand, where our allegiance lies. Pilate, quit telling us that Christ is our king. We'll tell you where our allegiance lies. We have no king but Caesar. What an amazing declaration for these religious leaders of the Jews. They pledge allegiance to Caesar. Israel had long been an oppressed nation. From oppression and bondage and slavery in Egypt to exile in Babylon and now under Roman oppression, they pledge allegiance to their oppressor. They reject Christ as king. It was a vocal rejection of the theocratic allegiance to their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now look, they didn't see Christ as their king, but they're not just rejecting Christ as their king in this declaration of Caesar as their king. They're rejecting the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are rejecting their heritage. They're in this declaration, for them to do this, this is blasphemous for them to do this. Yes, they don't believe Jesus is their king. They reject him as their king, but now they're rejecting all of their heritage and all of their history and their allegiance to the God of Israel. I love what the InterVarsity Press commentary says at this point. Here are the spiritual leaders of Israel denying the very faith they are claiming to uphold in the rejection of Jesus. Wow. You know, this is amazing. Uh, when, when I studied this, I, 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 I never knew this, but the chief priest during Passover would sing a song during Passover. Lots of ceremony and songs and rituals during the Feast of Passover. And this is the time of the Feast of Passover right here leading up to the crucifixion of Christ. And the chief priest who just declared their allegiance to Caesar, the chief priest would sing a song during the Feast of Passover. Listen to the song they would sing. To God, to Jehovah, may you be our king and you alone. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Beside you, we have no king redeemer or savior no liberator deliverer provider we have no king but you and to get what they want to manipulate Pilate to do what they desire they abandon their allegiance to their god and at this point the judgment on the nation is complete when the leaders have gone the way of rejection of god the judgment is complete the leadership now completes this judgment. In the breaking of the covenant by which God was Israel's king, the Jews now renounce their status as God's people. So in that moment, what were they doing when they declared we have no king but Caesar? In that moment, honestly, what they were doing was they were worshiping idols. 
They're worshiping idols. Caesar declared himself to be God. He was the highest authority. And so when they were declaring that they had no king but Caesar and they were pledging their allegiance to Caesar over and above Jehovah God, they were worshiping idols. They were worshiping false gods. This is nothing new for Israel though, right? We see throughout their history, they would worship false gods. Look at Judges chapter 2. Years after deliverance from Egyptian slavery, listen to Judges 2. And the people of God did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods and among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. This is what the nation did. They would go after other gods. And this is why God said, you must have me as your king. You must have your allegiance to me. You must not be like the nations around you. And anytime God's people try to be around the world in the sense of allegiance and an adopting of values, it leads to idolatry. We're called to be in the world, but not of it. But anytime we are of the world, we adopt their values. We adopt their idolatry. Here's another account years before. A generation before what we see in Judges 2, Moses goes up Mount Sinai and he comes down with tablets of stone with the law of God. And when he comes down, he comes down because God told him, Moses, your people are acting stupid. They've lost their mind. Look, look, look. That's what God says here, Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses had laid to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, make us gods who shall go before us As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off your rings of gold from your ears and from your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And God tells Moses, listen to what God tells Moses. God tells Moses, The people you brought out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. God's so angry, he's not even owning his own people. He says, they're your people. You corrupted them. And Moses intercedes for God's people before God. Give him another chance. And Moses comes down and he throws down the tablets. And the law of God in stone gets ground into powder. And the nation has to drink the law of God in powder form, right? God continued, God's people continually went astray in their heart. Hebrews 3.10, speaking of Psalms 95, and God's people says, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. God's people rejected their king and, and now they're going after idols. You know, the late Tim Keller said this about idols and idolatry. He says the human heart is an idol factory. The human heart is an idol factor. We gravitate towards idolatry. The heart of man continually is tempted. You and I are continually tempted to worship idols. May we not see this as just Israel. Israel and Luke and John 19, they're rejecting Christ as king and they're, they're, they're declaring declaration to Caesar and to idol worship. May we not see it that that's them and that's not us. No, we, our heart, the heart of man from beginning to the end We have a tendency to go after things that are false, to worship false gods, the gods of the spirit of the age. The human heart is an idol factory. 
Have you heard of an exclusivity clause clause in business? An exclusivity clause. In case you haven't heard of what an exclusivity clause is, here's what it is. An exclusivity clause is a legal document that restricts the signer from buying, selling, or promoting any goods or services from any person or company other than the company associated with the contract. In short, the company or individual works exclusively with the issuer of the contract. And for our purposes this morning in this message, God signs an exclusivity clause on the heart of his people. You can't do business with so-called gods. You can't do business with idols. You're my people. Allegiance to Caesar? Are you kidding me? You can't do business with Caesar. He's not your God. You can't do business with Caesar. And thinking about another, when thinking about business, is another aspect of the business world. If that didn't explain it for you, here's, a, here's another one. How many of you like Arm & Hammer baking soda? You use Arm & Hammer baking soda? How many of you, when you think of Arm & Arm Hammer, when you think of baking soda, you think of Arm & Hammer? Do you think of great value? Do you think of, what's the, what's the, what's the Rouse's brand? Best choice, whatever those other choices are. Is that what you think of when you think of baking soda? No, none of you do. Why? Because Arm & Hammer has a corner on the market. They have a monopoly. They have a monopoly. And God wants the corner of the market on our heart as his people. God wants 100% market share of our heart because we are his people. He is our God. We belong to him. We belong to him. We've been bought with a price. The chief priest, their devotion was for sale. It was for sale. If you do what we want, our devotion will switch. We're good with Caesar. Caesar? Caesar? Allegiance to Caesar? Sure. I'm good with Caesar. I can go that way. I can go that way. I'll give 60% to Yahweh and 40% to Caesar, or we can flip the script. We'll go 60 to Caesar and 40 to Yahweh. Whatever it takes to get you to do what we want, Pilate. And the question for us today as we press into this about our heart is, what people or things are we willing to pledge allegiance to in place of a full devotion to God? Listen, God will have no competition for our heart. We are His or we are not. But He will have no competition for the kingship of our heart. Which king will you serve? Exodus 20 says, you shall have no other gods before me you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth you shall not bow down to them or serve them for i the lord your god am a jealous god what does it mean that god is jealous it's not sinfully jealous we, we can be sinfully jealous it means that god wants full devotion between him and his people and anything that is, is in competition for that devotion is a threat to the relationship He has with us. He is a jealous God. He wants all of our affection. And what we have here is we have political expedience being worshipped. We have political expedience, position and power, money, control, the love and adulation of the people, the chief priests. This, is, this was their idols. They were looking for money and control, and they loved the seats in the synagogues to be called rabbi by people. That's what Jesus said when he rebuked them. 
And this is what they're worshiping. This is their idols. But we can have many different idols in our lives, things that we worship. And standing in front of them as they're rejecting Yahweh in place of Caesar is the only true God. God incarnate, God in the flesh is standing in front of them, the eternal God of creation with human skin. And they would have none of them. And instead of him, they were willing to abandon Yahweh and take Caesar. We will take Caesar. Listen, and what are, their, what are they saying when they're saying we'll take Caesar? They're, they're saying we will take oppression. We'll take oppression. We'll take our oppressor over the one who has come to liberate from oppression. That's what they're saying. We will take our oppressor in place of the one who came to liberate us from oppression. Listen, and how often do we do the same? We take what oppresses us and keeps us in bondage instead of the one who has come to destroy those bondages. This is Satan's strategy in our life to get us to choose idols and to go after things that keep us in bondage instead of Christ and choosing Him. This is his strategy. I love what Adrian Rogers says about Satan's strategy in the life of the believer. I love Pastor Adrian Rogers. He's passed away in 05. Listen to what he says about Satan's strategy. You never really understand the power of Satan until you get saved. You might say, I don't have any difficulty with the devil. If you don't, let me tell you why. It's because you and the devil are traveling in the same direction. If you turn around, you'll have a collision with him. But right now, you're in collusion with him. And God's people right here are in collusion with Rome. They're in collusion with Rome to not only reject Christ as king, but to reject Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of their fathers. Jesus was their king, the long-awaited Messiah. Then they reject him, and then they pledge allegiance to a false god in Caesar. We'll take continued oppression over liberation. You know what's powerful is is that over three years before these chief priests chose to keep their allegiance to their oppressor, to choose allegiance to their, to, 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 to their oppressor, Jesus, three years earlier, went into the synagogue, opened the scroll to Isaiah, and said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that they may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, and they shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. And this promise, spoken by Jesus from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 61, was written first for his people Israel. He came to liberate them from, opp from oppression. And three years after he stood in the synagogue, maybe perhaps in front of some of these chief priests, they stand in front of Jesus who declared that he came to liberate them from oppression and they choose allegiance to their oppressor. Wow. Wow. They chose allegiance to the, their oppressor so that they can murder the one who came to liberate them from oppression. Do you see the wiles of the devil? 
Listen, I know this is, can get complicated in our head when we think about it. Yes, all of these people are a part of God's plan to move Jesus towards the cross. And yes, this was in the foreknowledge of God. And yes, God was, Jesus was headed to the cross. But every single one of them were culpable for their rejection of Christ. And every single one of them were culpable for their, the rejection of the God, their God of their forefathers. That's what happened when Peter stood up on, in, in, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. He held all of them responsible and said, you are guilty. You crucified your king, the only Savior. Jesus was their freedom. Freedom from captivity. The opening of prison doors, beauty for ashes, ancient ruins built up, cities repaired. Jesus of Nazareth was their Messiah king. And they would have none of them. They chose pagan idolatry over Christ. Jesus read that in Isaiah in the temple on the Sabbath. But before Jesus went to the cross, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He wept in the garden of Gethsemane. Yeah, he did. But he cried out in mourning over Jerusalem. Do you remember? This is what we see next, that the king weeps over the city. God's people reject the king. God's people go after idols. Now we see the king weeps over the city. The bearing of his cross is coming within a few moments. He will be too weak to carry it up the hill called Golgotha. Simon of Cyrene is going to have to help him carry his cross up the hill. But before he bears the sin of the world, he is rejected by his own. He is mocked by his own people. And Caesar is given praise instead of him. And before all of that happened, Jesus wept over the city that would reject him. Look at Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39. Jesus is looking out over Jerusalem and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus stands overlooking Jerusalem and he weeps. I would have cared for you like a hen cares for her chicks. I, I would have brought you in. Isaiah 61, I'm here to liberate you from oppression. I'm here to protect you. I'm here to comfort you. I'm here to be your Messiah King, your deliverer. But you were not willing. I wanted you to come to me. I provided for you. Listen, our God is a gracious king. He doesn't force anything onto anyone. He doesn't force anyone into his care. He says they were not willing. They were not willing. What is the result of not being willing to go after Christ as king and reject him? What's the result of re re rejection of Jesus? Look what it said there, verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. And the truth is that Jesus is not only declaring what is true for all of our lives, when we reject Christ, we are, we are empty, we are left empty, and our house is left desolate, house meaning our life, but I believe that Jesus is referencing the temple in Jerusalem. 
Just a few years down the road, A.D. 70, Jerusalem is sacked. The temple is destroyed. And Jesus is crying out over Jerusalem. He's crying out over the city. He's crying out about the chief priests and the Pharisees and the, and the spiritual leaders. And he's saying, he's saying, I wanted you to come to me. I, I came so that you would come to me, but you would have none of me. And you wanted to be, uh, do away with me and crucify me. And see, your house is left to you desolate. The temple it would be destroyed. The end of the rejection of Christ as king was emptiness and destruction. And the same has been true for everyone since. And so the question is, the question was for them then, and the question is for us now, which king will you serve? Caesar or Christ? The spirit of the age or the king of eternity? Which king will we serve? The same has been true for every church in history. Just like the Broadway Presbyterian Church made a choice to pledge allegiance to to Caesar, now their church is empty. The point is this for us today. Let's bring it home as we conclude. The point for us is this. What about our lives? What king will we serve? Who will we pledge our allegiance to? The false idols of our time? Or the eternal king of creation? Who will, who will we serve? Which king will we serve? I'll tell you who I, I'm going to serve. I'll tell you the king that I choose to follow and bow to. I'm going to tell you, but I'm not going to tell you in my words. I'm going to tell you in the words of the late Pastor S.M. Lockridge of Calvary Baptist Church of San Diego. He said it so clearly. Listen to the words of Pastor Lockridge declaring who his king is. Maybe, maybe you can relate. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. My king is God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. That's my king. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. That's my king. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves 
the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. That's my king. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. The heaven of heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. You, you can't get him out of your mind and you can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him, and Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. He always has been, and he always will be. He had no predecessor, and he will have no successor. There was nobody before him, and there'll be nobody after him. You can't impeach him, and he's not going to resign. The question is, is, do you know him? Do you know him? Amen.